Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston on News Talk. Hello there and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour and we've got some more great guests from all around the world today. Coming up, he's in, he's out, he's back. Corporate chaos at OpenAI as Sam Altman departs from Microsoft and returns within a week. We have our show favourite, Chris Stokel-Walker. He's going to be here to reveal what went on behind the scenes. Plus, the surprising victory of libertarian Javier Mali in Argentina's presidential election last week. Uh, we're going to be joined by journalist Josefina Solomon. She's going to be joining us from Argentina to explain how it all happened and what it's like on the streets of Argentina. Argentina now. And the latest on Everton's points deduction in the Premier League and what it means for the finances at the top of football. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, we're going to move to the other side of the world because last Sunday, Argentines went to the polls and emerged with a surprising new leader. He's a TV celebrity and a former Mick Jagger impersonator, no less. His name is Javier Mili. And Argentina, as you may know, has been decimated by hyperinflation in recent months, in particular with the country's inflation rate for this year standing at a whopping 124%, the highest since 1991. And at the same time, it's been grappling with this huge cost of living crisis, which is affecting people there um, quite understandably. So joining us now from Argentina to delve a little deeper into the historical moment for the country is freelance journalist Josefina Salomon. Josefina, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Hi, Mandy. Thank you for having me. Now, you're from Argentina originally. You don't normally live there, but I understand you're there at the moment and you've been covering this for The Guardian, which is where we happened upon you. So first of all, I wanted to find out what is the mood like in the country post-election? So I came back and what I saw was a mix between anxiety and anger. Um, And it's all pretty much related to the economic crisis, which is particularly dire at the moment, as you were describing it, hyperinflation. And the just imagine the situation that Europe is living through and then multiply it by 10. So 140% inflation, what it means for daily life is you go on the Monday and you go and buy something. Let's say I went to buy a kilo of tomatoes and there were a thousand pesos. And then the following week, there were 2000 pesos. Mm. And for most Argentinians, their salaries don't go up as much or if at all. So people's uh, purchase power has been squeezed so tightly that for many people really we're in the situation where putting food on the table has become increasingly challenging. So many analysts are saying, well, against that background, then no, it isn't surprising that you have a leader like Millet who basically really, really understood that anger and said, you want change? Well, this is what I'm going to offer to you. I'm going to I'm going to offer change. Now, his proposals are not too clear yet, um, but he he won his campaign basically on, on, on the premise that he was going to change things. Mm. And in that scenario that you've just painted there and the frustration that people must feel with the current government and current politicians, in steps this character who at least promises to disrupt that system. But disruptors, we know, are only part of the 
Um, we only ever see one part of the story where they disrupt something, but they also want to recreate a society in their own sort of vision. So what was he proposing and what policies was he putting forward to try and say to people, OK, I understand your frustrations. Here could, here's how I could fix them. The interesting thing about this character is that he showed there were many versions of Millet throughout the campaign. The, the one thing that is very particular about Argentina is that the electoral process is very long. So the campaign originally started back in February. So and Millet is going to take office in December. So it's nearly a year of campaign. So what normally what we, which is extremely long. So normally what happens is you see politicians change and kind of test messages and test proposals and in many ways adapt those proposals to what people are really reacting to positively, right? So um, in the beginning, so Millet came to the, the kind of surface as this uh, very kind of loud and very outspoken character around five years ago. And at that time, nobody really thought that he had any chance of becoming first a politician, let alone the president. So he's still, I mean, I am still surprised by saying it, you know, and I think this, this kind of express the general feeling over here, even for people who voted for him, we still can't believe that this, this happened. But um, just going back to, to what happened this year, he um, so he used to be this TV personality. Um, he's an economist, so he used to analyze kind of uh, the, the, the current affairs and the way that Argentina was run. He's an extreme liberal, so he believes in a very small state. Um, he doesn't think that the state has any business uh, in organizing society or helping those who are more marginalized, which in Argentina is around 40% of people. So that discourse, mm. in many ways, really rang true to a percentage of the population here who do believe that the state does too much for people, um, even on things like uh, you know social social aid for for people who, are, for example, don't have jobs or um, you know are struggling uh, to put food on the table. So the state has a really big role. In many ways, um, it is a role that is similar to the role that the state has in Europe, mm. uh, let's say. And there is a really long tradition of that in Argentina, but liberal politicians have been blaming that and have been saying that that has been the cause of many of the economic problems that, that Argentina has. Mm. So when he came out against that and with the proposal of making the state smaller, and that means slashing public spending in every category, including um, you know social aid, public education, public health, uh, in, in, in all the different categories, mm. that really that really convinced uh, a, a large part of the population. Well, half of the country kind of backed that and thought that that was a good idea. Now, many analysts who have been trying to understand uh, what happened on Sunday now say that some of the people perhaps didn't quite understand what it means to live in a country where the state is less involved in daily life. Mm. So... Sorry. Yeah, no, no. So I, yeah, that's absolutely the point that actually by default, they could have been 
you know, voting for something that would actually make things worse. I'm just kind of minded of the whole Brexit campaign and how people bought into it. And then there's now a lot of buyer's remorse in the UK over the implications and what has actually happened to them. But um, Josephine, I want to go back to what you said there at the beginning about his how he has changed over the course of the years and how he's adapted his messaging to what voters are responding to. Because when you explained his trajectory there, even in the national kind of discourse, it sounds very much like Donald Trump. Now, I know it's easy just to compare every kind of person who comes from left of field and and wins a victory historic one like this to Donald Trump. But actually, if you think of it, when Donald Trump came on the scene, he was discounted in 2016, really. Uh, people, the media, didn't take him seriously. Even people who voted for him, just like in Argentina, didn't really expect him to win. But there we had him in the White House and there were severe implications for that. Um, I suppose what I wanted to ask you about Millet is, um, do you think that now that he's in um, government, his personality type and he's very extreme in some of his views. Do you think that is likely to change? Do they become any more, what is it, responsible in his messaging? Or do you think that this is going to be a very disruptive transition? I think that is an excellent question. And it is exactly, it's precisely the questions, the question that Argentinians are asking themselves uh, right now. Um, the one thing that Millet did and managed to do very surprisingly, incredibly surprisingly, that I think that is is similar perhaps to what Trump did, is that he managed to create a new a new political base mm. that either wasn't there before or that we didn't see. Um, the one thing that surprised me, so on, on the Sunday of the election, I went to cover the Millet supporters, right? I wanted to understand, I had been covering them before, but I wanted to understand the, more of the feeling um, and I went to the center of the city and there were this gathering and there were hundreds of people, very happy, obviously, their candidate won. And I spoke to a lot of people and the vast majority of them said that that was the first time, young and not so young, right? Mm. It was the first time in their lives that they had participated in any kind of political event on the streets. And you have to remember that this is a country that has a very rich political history. So people here are very politicized. Everybody or lots of people participate in politics. Um, politics is, a, is an issue of conversation and people are involved in political parties and demonstrations are a big thing and people go on the streets. But the majority of the people who used to do that were people who had more progressive views, let's say. Mm -hmm. But now, all of a sudden, we see this other group of people who are also taking on the streets to claim a different political discourse. We hadn't seen that here before. And I think there is a slight similarity in some way, maybe with the emergence of Trump in the US and this um, really vocal new kind of political movement over there. A lot of the people who make up this new movement are young, uh, a lot of them are young males. There is a concern about the implications of that and what that can mean for a lot of human rights uh, that have been you know, conquered over the last few decades and particularly the last few years in Argentina. And there is a real concern. I mean, the, the thinking, I think, has shifted a little bit between the, oh, no, he's not going to be able to do anything or the things that he promised to do. 
And now, you know, for the last couple of days, he has come out to actually say, yes, we are going to slash public spending and we're going to do it by cutting this, this. And he started kind of, mm. he's sending some signals of what he's going to do. And it is starting to look as bad as we thought it was going to be. Right. Well, look, um, I just want to turn briefly to the, the markets, investors. Um, how did they react to the, the election on Sunday? Well, there was a really large concern. So Argentina, we have our own currency, but the economy in Argentina is very much uh, directed by the US dollar. So, Sorry, he, just to, to remind listeners, he has also previously promised at least to, to scrap the peso. Yes, exactly. And the interesting thing about that is, uh, you, you, your listeners might not know, but there are other countries in Latin America who have dollarized with different degrees of success and a lot of social impact. Um, but in in actual fact, half of Argentinian, Argentina's economy is dollarized already. So, for example, if you want to buy a property here, you do it in US dollars and you actually do it in cash. So you go, you you get your notes, oh. US notes, and you go to a bank and just hand over the notes to uh, to the owner of the property you want to buy. It's, it's a very, I think it's a very particular economy here. And it is the result of people not trusting the local currency for decades. So that's how I think we ended in the situation that we are in now. So um, the dollar is so important that people, when they, people always tell the story and it is true. So when you wake up in the morning, you check what the temperature is and you check what the exchange rate is. Uh, with a dollar. Well, that's something that's something lots of listeners can sympathise with because we used to do that with sterling um, in the 80s. And yeah, it's a real thing. And I mean, you know, when you talked at the very beginning here about the anxiety that people are feeling there, you can understand exactly why the currency is so important and why when he says something about changing things, it could cause even more anxiety. Um, what do you think is going to happen in the days and weeks ahead? Do you think that he will settle down and create a transitionary cabinet or what is likely to happen in the immediate future? Well, we know for sure that he's putting together a cabinet that includes members of the of previous, previous more liberal administrations. So he is bringing in people who have experience in government, but who have his same mindset. So public spending is going to be slashed. We know that. He's already saying that inflation is likely to go up, to continue to go up for the next at least six to nine months, and that he knows that that is going to increase the poverty rate. So the big question is how he's going to deal with that, because Argentinian people are not going to stay at home just taking it. You know, people are going to go on the streets uh, unions aren't going to stay at home. Uh, people are going to go to the streets and protest and demand that that their lives are improved. Well, Josefina, it's been fascinating to get uh, your insights from the ground there in Argentina. So thank you very, very much for taking the time to be with us today. That was Josefina Salomon from uh, Argentina explaining about the aftermath of last week's election. Josefina, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Mandy, for having me. Thanks. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, Everton were docked points in the Premiership last week. So why are so many Premiership teams now facing the dock after the break? I'll be joined by Martin Lipton of The Sun to discuss.
You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, for our next item, take a little listen to this. the captain who has inspired his team to victory. Manchester United, the favourites, have been beaten by the underdogs. Manchester United, for whom the season had promised so much, well, it's now ended in bitter disappointment. The campaign without a trophy. Everton, bottom of the Premier League, back in the early part of the season, seemingly on their way down. Well, they've survived relegation, and now they've gone on to win the FA Cup. That was, of course, the victory celebrations when Everton Football Club last won a big competition back in 1995. Well, last week, the football club were hit by a 10-point deduction after an independent commission's ruling. The decision could put Everton's season in serious jeopardy and it will no doubt have other clubs scrambling to check their balance sheets. So what was the motivation to go after Everton and what might be next for other clubs? To answer all of that, I'm joined now by Martin Lipton, who's Chief Sports Reporter at The Sun. Martin, thanks for being with us again today. My pleasure. Now, Martin, we had a big discussion about this issue last year when Man City were in the fray, but I think it's important to point out, first of all, that this particular ruling about in, uh, Everton was an independent ruling on Premiership rules. Can you just explain to us what the ruling was and what effect it could have on Everton Football Club? Well, quite simply, uh, every club under Premier League rules has an obligation to uh, only, to basically to limit its, its losses. Uh, and you're allowed a, a loss of £105 million over three seasons. That doesn't include uh, money spent on uh, stadium building and, and all these sort of infrastructure costs. There's extra latitude for the, the, the long-term implications of, uh, of the pandemic, etc. And Everton busts the limit by £19.5 million. And it's a... It's quite interesting because at the time they were charged, Everton were in complete denial and, and insisted they'd done nothing wrong and they'd be proven innocent. And then they actually admitted the charge at the hearing, mm. uh, although they claimed that their losses were only uh, 9.7 million over the permitted level. And under the rule book, that was a breach. And the independent commission, a three-man team of lawyers headed by a senior uh, King's Council, imposed the penalty. The Premier League was asking for effectively a nine-point penalty, which was a six-point starting point for breaking the rules, plus uh, one point for each five million breach, and the breach was under 20 million, so that's three times one point, so that would have been nine points. Uh, but the the commission actually just determined that they were not going to listen to that, that they were going to look at the, the whole evidence and impose a fitting penalty uh, for the offence. Mm. And as you say, Everton were still trying to get that 19 million excess down by petitioning for the, for that. But this is an independent ruling and they have said what they've said. Now, lots of Everton fans cried foul last week then, particularly because they were citing the Manchester City case. Who have, this was one charge against them. They've got 115 charges against them. It's, it's easy to say it's much more complex as an issue, but... Uh, is it really fair play to punish one team immediately and allow the other um, investigation to go on for months and years? Uh, well, basically, yes, because the investigation will go at the pace it goes. But you know, there will be another independent committee to hear 
the the case against Manchester City. But even at the, the outset of that, we knew it would take some time, a considerable amount of time, uh, to to get even to the hearing. Um, you know, Everton's case, they were charged in February. The hearing wasn't until October. They had That was 10 months. You know, it wasn't as if it was an, over, an overnight thing then. In fact, the Premier League clubs collectively uh, voted a rule change um, in the summer where now what's seen as a simple case, and Everton's was basically a simple case because the, they bust a particular limit, must be dealt with within three months of the charge being laid. Mm. So the timescale has actually been shortened going forward rather than lengthened. But City is a very different issue because of the, the scale of the allegations and also the vehemence of their denials. They insist they have done nothing wrong. Um, that's to be tested in, in, the, in the tribunal. Uh, but also the length of period of time over the... We're talking about things that took place over um, a six-year period, or allegedly over a six-year period, whereas Everton was a, an offence when they handed in the accounts which didn't meet um, the Premier League satisfaction at the end of last year. By the sounds of your response, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you sound like you think that this was a fair outcome for Everton, but what consequences could it have, not just... Um, on the league table, but for their potential commercial partnerships? Look, I think, first of all, the the proposed deal to sell Everton to the conglomerate of 777 partners, which I'm not convinced will actually be passed by the Premier League, but that's a separate issue. The value of that deal will now go down. Um, You know, they will drive a hard bargain. They've already made it clear that they were going to take any potential penalty imposed on Everton into account, into the, the final... Uh, purchase price if if they can come to that agreement with Farhad Mashiri to to buy the club. Um, uh, but of course, Everton are also in the midst of this major mm. building project uh, on Family Moor Dock, the new stadium, which is um, like the Aviva uh, in, in Dublin, is due to host uh, uh, games at Euro 2028. Uh, if Everton were to get relegated, and that's not inconceivable given they're now 19th, um, they may get some of those points back. They may not. It could be existential for the club. It could really imperil the, the very existence of Everton Football Club as a, as a, as a significant force. Mm. I actually heard a discussion on this um, last week. I, I can't remember who was talking about it, but they were they were saying that actually for Everton to deal with this now is possibly not the worst season of all because the teams at the bottom three are very weak and they have a good chance of staying up even with this. What 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 do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a, a valid argument. If you look at Luton, Sheffield United and Burnley, uh, it, it's a struggle at the moment to see them get 40 points between them. Mm. Um, and 40 points is normally the, the, the level you need. I mean, Everton had got 14 from 12 games, so they were mid-table and they were, you know, six, eight points clear of, of the drop zone. But all it needs is a couple of poor results or good results for the, the other teams and they'll be right in it. They need to get some points on the ball swiftly or this could become a real anchor for them, uh, dragging them into the, the bottomless pit of, of relegation because of the consequences. Mm. I, I still think they're probably enough in that squad uh, and the way they're playing at the moment to, to be okay. But when teams get deducted points, they often suffer at mm. the end of the season because it has, a, has an effect on the, on the morale within the squad as well. 
Yeah, um, but it can also rally their support and they have a very strong support base anyway. But if you'd said to anybody at the beginning of this season, look, Everton are going to be deducted 10 points and they may still survive, I I probably wouldn't have believed it. I don't think many people would have. But anyway, let's broaden it out beyond Everton, Martin, because I really just want to get your view on what what are the other clubs who could be looking at this going, uh uh-oh, who's next on the list and what implications is it for them? Because it does send out a really strong signal that these independent panels are going to apply these uh, rules very stringently now. Yeah, look, I mean, it's fairly clear that people will look at the spending of Chelsea, for example, uh, over the last uh, year or so under Bowley's ownership, albeit that Chelsea already, we believe, under investigation, they haven't been charged yet, uh, after flagging up issues um, under the previous ownership of Abramovich. So they could be in in significant trouble. Obviously, Manchester City, I suspect that if these charges against City are proven, points deductions will not be sufficient. There will be a massive fine into eight or nine figures, and I suspect also relegation. That only if they are proven to be correct. And and City obviously will, as I said, vehemently uh, denying all of the allegations. But I think every club has got to have a look at how it spends its money. I, you know, I've no idea what Nottingham Forest spending has been like, but I look at it from the outside and think, crikey, mm. that's an awful lot of money for a, a club with limited resources. Um, and other clubs too. I mean, there are certain clubs who we know don't spend a lot of money. Luton have not spent anything, really. Um, they've decided to, to take their Premier League hit, get relegated and use that money to build a new stadium, effectively, um, which is an interesting approach. But others will always gamble. You know, one of the things interesting, one of the clubs who are looking for compensation off of Everton are Leicester, who were relegated last season one place below Everton. But that's Leicester, of course, who won the Premier League famously in 2016. If Leicester had not been promoted the season they were promoted from the EFL, they would almost certainly have had a massive points deduction from the EFL for breaching the Football League's yeah. uh, financial rules. But because they were in the Premier League, they weren't investigated. So p- clubs are always going to gamble and hope they can get away with it. That's the nature of, of sport, I think. Mm. And it is like pulling a thread in a jumper because where does it begin to unravel and where does that end? Because you can have players who are challenging clubs. Um, and if you just look at the Manchester City issue and the 115 charges there and the breadth of that, everything from financial to their dealings with Europe and managers and all that kind of stuff, like how far can they be relegated? And then what? where does the cutoff point start for other teams challenging um, them for the Premiership in any one individual year over the last eight years? It's a very difficult one. It's why I think if and when, if they are, say again, if they are found guilty, there will be a single punishment in a single season. Mm. Because if you go back and start deducting points for previous seasons, that opens a welter mm. of compensation uh, claims from other clubs. For example, if you take off three, se- three points from the se- a season when they lost the title but they won the title by one point from Liverpool, for example. Liverpool could claim that if they've been going to market for sponsorship deals as the Premier League champions, rather than as the runners-up, they could have asked for more money. So we'll have that money back, please. And it just it would never end. Mm. Whereas if you give them a single one-off uh, punishment and fine and make it clear that no other clubs, and this is part of league rules, actually, no other clubs have the right to demand compensation, 
then it ends there, which I think is what might prove to be the best outcome for the Premier League. Because the one thing they do not want is to have clubs constantly in the courts or demanding compensation. There is a mechanism, which is why uh, Leicester, Leeds and Burnley are going to try and get some compensation out of Everton. Mm. And of course, because Everton admitted the charge, even if the Everton uh, punishment is reduced, that compensation claim will still be heard because they've already admitted the charge. Yeah, there's a, they've accepted the principle. That was my, my next question was, did you anticipate any new regulations coming in now to sort of try and ring fence this or tidy it up for in terms of the implications to to allow these independent uh judgments to come but but not affect uh, have this kind of ripple effect all over the the premiership i think all, all you can do is just tighten up the financial rules which is is, is what is going to happen because there are they're incoming already started uh, uefa rules so if you want to play in european competition mm. by the 25 26 season you are only entitled to spend 70 percent of your revenues total on um Wages and transfers. That includes the amortisation where the length of player's uh, fee is, is divided by the length of his contract. So it's not a strict how much you spend in, a, in any one summer. It's, it's, it's a calculation. Mm. And the Premier League is also looking to, if not exactly mirror those rules, but bringing similar rules, which will uh, maybe see clubs not in Europe capture between 85 and 90% of their revenues on wages and, and transfers in any one season. So once, every, once those rules are in place, mm. UEFA have actually devised a, a written state, uh, you know, a schedule of punishment for breaching the, breaching the rules. So I would suspect that in the, at some point the Premier League would look to, to do the same and then no one could ever have any argument about the punishment because that punishment has already been been written down in statute. Yeah. At this stage, it is not. At this stage, it is at the whim of the commission. Mm. And I do wonder if, if going forward, a more fixed penalty schedule may be drafted and agreed by the clubs. And at the end of the day, all Premier League rules are decided by a vote of the clubs, and you need 14 of the clubs to agree something for it to go into the rule book. And as we saw earlier um, this week, the clubs blocked a proposal to ban loans from associated party clubs. So Newcastle led the rebellion, which would allow them to take loan deals in January from the Saudi clubs. The Premier League didn't get its way. Mm. The league has got to draft rules that are acceptable to at least 14 clubs for them to be on the statute book. Yeah, it, it doesn't really seem reasonable to allow the clubs who are investing in this to, to move the goalposts themselves, not to mix our metaphors. But look, as you say, they're like the game itself. The rules need to be standardised. Um, maybe these judicial uh, rulings are like VAR where we're all second guessing them. But Martin, it is a fascinating subject. It's not without its complications. I think you've explained it really well to us today. So thank you for being with us. That was Martin Lipton from The Sun. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Now, this time last year, OpenAI launched onto the world as a game changer. Last week, its CEO was sacked and then returned to its company. So where did it all go wrong? We'll be finding out after the break. You welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, for over a week now, um, AI 
largely regarded as the hottest commodity in Silicon Valley, has been dominating the headlines after sensationally outing its CEO, Sam Altman. He was sacked. He was hired then by Microsoft and now he's back in the company. So it's all really played out like something from a soap opera. And joining me now to get a better understanding as to why Altman was fired in the first place and what lies ahead for him and for OpenAI, I'm delighted to be joined by show favourite journalist Chris Stokel-Walker. Chris, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Now, Chris, you were here last year when this was first launched, explaining to us what ChatGDP was and also what OpenAI was. And it was funny because one of the first conversations we had was about how this would challenge and jeopardise people's jobs. It's ironic that one of the first people who got ousted from AI over artificial intelligence is the CEO. Can you just tell us, in your view, because there's lots of scenarios and theories around what actually caused him to be fired in the first place? place. Yeah, and this is the important thing is we we still don't yet know, nor do actually the people within OpenAI, more than 700 staff members who eventually revolted, and we'll, we'll probably get onto that in a little bit. Um, we understand that there is some sort of dispute that went on between Sam Altman, who is uh, one of the founders uh, and the current CEO of OpenAI, and uh, some others within the organization, including potentially the board, which is a non-profit board designed to try and keep in check the for-profit company, um, and also potentially one of those members of the board, a guy called Ilyas Atskeva, who um, is OpenAI's head of super alignment. Now, that's a little bit of a technical jargony term that also has a little bit of PR put into it. Essentially, Satskeva's job was to try and keep in check the development of artificial intelligence so that it didn't uh, run the risk of kind of overawing humanity and enslaving us all, which is actually a, a questionable thing that could happen. Not everybody believes that is actually a risk. But it seems like there was some sort of disagreement between the two um, early suggestions that it's potentially over the idea that um, OpenAI has kind of made a breakthrough technologically in this sort of stuff. And Satskeva kind of saw the peril in that. Sam Altman saw it as an opportunity to profit and try to kind of tap the brakes in, in the most drastic way possible by essentially saying, this company that you founded you can no longer be part of it. Mm. And quite big and serious and existential questions here, because on the one hand, you have this question that the board may be struggling with about Mm. their obligations to the safety of humanity, no less. And then um, Altman's... um, theory, perhaps, that actually what they're trying to do is create profit, move the company forward. And it's quite a big gulf. If you just look at the the wording that they used about his departure in the first uh, instance, it was about instances of obfuscation. Now, that could be anything from not keeping people informed deliberately. Um, but there definitely did seem to be a huge chism between the board and him that precipitated this. They did. And he is kind of stuck in the middle because actually he has one foot in, in both camps. Mm. He is um, very much um, a child and a kind of uh, product of Silicon Valley's most excessive elements in terms of he was um, you know initially set up a founder, uh, set up a startup company 
that was funded by uh, an organization called Y Combinator, which is kind of a startup accelerator that that gives uh, investing uh, advice and, and funding to young companies. He then actually became president of Y Combinator and held both that role and the role of uh, co-founder of OpenAI for a number of years before actually only becoming CEO full-time in 2019. Um, and he is also, as well as being that kind of profit-driven person who ultimately has to um, dictate the bottom line of OpenAI, he's also personally a little bit of a prepper. He is worried about kind of existential risks, not necessarily in artificial intelligence only, but mm. in, in other areas as well. He has bug-out bags. He has um, you know, some land in the Big Sur in the United States where he can escape to. He's also said previously in an interview that um, he would kind of be willing to escape to uh, a private island in New Zealand in the event of a pandemic. So this is a man who I think was kind of caught in the middle and maybe is kind of going through a a little bit of a, a transition from someone who was worried about these existential risks mm. to maybe seeing the money and frankly quite liking it. Yeah. Uh, so so after he was ousted by uh, OpenAI, uh, he then was quickly... Um, uh, enlisted by Microsoft, who, as I understand it, own quite a bit of OpenAI themselves. So what was that tactic about from Microsoft? Yeah, this is where the story gets a bit silly, Mandy. So, um, yeah, Sam Altman was deposed, was replaced by OpenAI's chief technology technology officer, Mira Minarty, um, for a couple of days. And then there was a second replacement CEO put in place, Emmett Shear. In that time, uh, Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, who was his deputy, um, someone who's been with him basically since the start of OpenAI, um, they both were tapped up by Microsoft, um, who are essentially the biggest investor in OpenAI, have have ploughed more than $10 billion, up to $13 billion into uh, the company and are essentially um, sort of fully bought in to OpenAI's success. Mm. Yet they were willing to provide Altman and Brockman with essentially endless funds to set up a competing AI lab within Microsoft and to bring over any staff who felt loyal to Altman. So this was a really bizarre situation where for a, a period of time, Microsoft, one of the biggest tech companies in the world, was kind of riding two competing horses and, and trying to keep them both happy. Obviously, Altman was seen as very, very significant to Microsoft, but also at the same time, they had recognized that they invested all of this cash into the success of one company that powers a lot of their AI technology. And so they felt they had to keep going with that as well. If you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to Chris Stokel Walker, and we're speaking about the ongoing crisis at a corporate level in open AI. So is there any issues for Microsoft here when it comes to corporate governance or anti-competitiveness? If you're thinking that the board already have accused him of obfuscation, is there some kind of suggestion that he's sharing stuff with Microsoft that he hadn't been? Anyway, it all ended up in a big nothing because mm. there was a staff <clears throat> revolt. Tell us who led the campaign to try and get him back. Ironically, one of the first people that replaced Altman as CEO. So Mira Marathi was uh, signature number one on an open letter to OpenAI's board late on in the weekend that essentially said, we as a staff have no confidence in what you've done. We have real concerns that you are um, bringing this company down from the inside. And so you need to resign or we will walk. Mm -hmm. And so this 
um, was kind of unveiled um, late Sunday night, early Monday morning, Silicon Valley time. 505 signatures were initially on that letter out of 770 OpenAI employees. Number one, obviously, being Mira Marathi there, as we explained. Number 12 was also very interesting. Ilya Satskeva, who is the person who we believe actually initially launched this queue, seems to have undergone a, a Damascene conversion and realized that he'd done something pretty terrible. Um, and from there, that was just the start. Those 550 signatures became 700. They then became 710. They became 720. Latest count was around about 747 signatures on there. So 96% of OpenAI staff said they were unhappy with the board and they were willing to walk out on the company that had paid their bills, essentially. And he also got support from the industry outside of the company itself. Just one of the quotes I love was Salesforce founder Mark Benioff um, talked about supporting him and offered public support while he was simultaneously trying to poach some of the employees at the same time uh, by increasing yeah. their salaries. But um, of course, that, that support from the uh, staff and those senior executives really important to push the board along. Altman definitely was winning all the PR battles, but how did the investors and venture capitalists react? They were hugely unhappy as well. Vinod Kozler, who is uh, the first venture capitalist to buy into OpenAI back in 2018, 2019, essentially they were initially funded for a little bit of a brief history lesson, funded and founded in 2015 with the support of Elon Musk, who was uh, there keen, happy to see an open sourced alternative that was a non-profit. When OpenAI started to diverge from that, Musk had a big falling out with them, pulled all the funding, and so they were forced to go out into the investment market. And Vinod Kozler was one of the first to back them. And he said also over the weekend, look, you're making a mistake here. Sam Altman is really quite a special talent. He's done some pretty incredible stuff with OpenAI. And, um, you know, Backing him is important and sacking him is, frankly, a terrible thing to do. Yeah, just turning to Altman himself for, for a moment. Look, there is that adage in work that nobody is irreplaceable. Um, does he fit into this cult of CEO that we see in Silicon Valley? Is he that impressive? Is it the salesman or is it the technology side or a bit of both? It's a little bit of both. He is um, much more a salesperson and much more business focused than he is academically so. I mean, he can certainly talk about AI and the technology behind it and do so from an area of authority. But he, he didn't complete his studies at university. He dropped out in order to found that company uh, that was initially funded by Y Combinator. Um, and so he is um, very much more business minded, I think, than he is academically minded and technically minded but we knew he was impressive and we knew that he was um very much a mover and a shaker you don't get frankly to be um the president of y combinator which is one of the main silicon valley organizations without doing that and he did it incredibly quickly as well in a, in a young career he's only 38 still um but i don't think we realized quite how much sway mm. he had over his staff until this weekend. It is kind of a messianic cult, it turns out. He's got some kind of um, resemblance to Steve Jobs, the, the late Apple 
icon, and I use the word icon because he held a number of different roles in terms of the executive at Apple, but he really was kind of larger than life and larger than the company. What he said went when it comes to Apple in terms of design decisions, business decisions, and still kind of holds um, a, a sway over what Apple does now, even nearly a decade since his death. Um and it turns out that Altman actually seems like a very Steve Jobsian character in that he has engendered enormous loyalty amongst his staff to the extent that they thought without him, this company just doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Putting himself in a very powerful position. I have to say, Chris, I was surprised at the vol- the number of staff. 770 doesn't seem a great deal of staff for a company with this proliferation or prominence, I suppose, in, in the world landscape when we're talking about this business, which is going to potentially affect humanity. I know that you've been watching AI very closely. So just for the final question today, maybe can I just broaden it out beyond OpenAI a little and that company. Um, looking at this a year on, um, how is AI positioned now? You know, is the competition real for them? And how do you think this episode, incident um, or issue, whatever you like to call it, will actually affect them in the marketplace? I think um, in some ways, if you'd asked me that question on <laughs> Saturday last week, I have said to you, well, OpenAI is in real trouble here because there's an opportunity for competitors who, frankly, have all been competing only for second place to step in because there was a period where it did look like an $80 billion company, that's billion with a B, uh, was going to go down the tubes um, and Microsoft would have benefited enormously from that, as would also some of the other competitors. And you know, one of them um, is a company called Anthropic, which was actually founded by three people who left OpenAI over sort of similar concerns that you know, profit was being put before people several years ago. And they stood potentially to, to leap in had this happened. Now that the dust has settled, now that Sam Altman is back, I think they're still dominant. I think actually they are weirdly even more dominant than they were in the past. There are still significant questions. Why did Sam Altman initially get fired? What does that say about him as a corporate leader? And what does it say about OpenAI and how much we can trust them in general? But they are still, by some distance, the number one player in this market. And more importantly than that, the bar to try and remove Sam Altman in the future just went up several fold. It's going to be very difficult for anybody to move against him going forwards because, frankly, nobody wants to repeat the incidents of this last week. And so in that case, you have to think, well, this is kind of OpenAI's world and it's going to shape it. And when we're talking about a ubiquitous technology like AI, that has huge ramifications for us. It's Sam Altman's world and we're just living in it. Well, look, we may not have seen the end of this particular saga but thank you very much Chris for enlightening us as always that was Chris Stogel Walker tech journalist thank you very much Chris for being with us today thank you well that's it for this episode of Taking Stock I want to thank all of today's guests for giving us a very valuable time and their insights my thanks as always to the producer of Taking Stock John Fardy with Jack MacDonald on research and Hugo De Silva Scott on sound any comments on today's programme you can always email us at takingstock at newstalk.com thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston Sunday morning at 9 on News Talk.